Today we're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. So if you could please stand with me as we read God's word together. The word of the Lord says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in, with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch Alan, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking at verses 1 through 11 this afternoon. And if it's cool with you, I'd just like to dive right into our time as you open or load your Bible. I don't know about you, I don't know if you know, but there are several, uh, there are a number of theories that are scattered, spread, and circulating throughout our country on whether or not Tupac Shakur is still alive or uh, making records. The late rapper was murdered, allegedly in September of 1996. And there are theories that suggest that not only did he fake his own death, but that he's still in hiding. That some people say that he's in New Mexico. Some people say that the last time they saw him was in Cuba. These theories and stories and arguments are ongoingly alive even in 2023. People are always looking for something new that can solve the mystery. You and I, especially if we're fans of Tupac, aren't too different in looking for something new. You and I have a tendency to want to move on to the next thing that's going to give us relief, to the next message, to the next book, to the next person, to the next experience, something that's going to provide us with something new in an effort to relieve us, give us happiness, give us value. But what if what we need isn't new? What if what we need is a reminder instead of what is true? Today we begin a new series on our core values. We've titled this series, The Church, Who We Are. And we'll be here for the next four weeks. And the purpose of this series is so that you are clear on who we are and what we're all about. This afternoon, we're going to begin with gospel centrality. That is our first value. See, we believe that the gospel is not only central to our theology, that is what we believe, but it is central to our philosophy, that is what we do. 
We also believe that the gospel is not simply a message, or that, let me say it this way, that the gospel is not a message with something new, but rather it is the reminder of what is true. One of the most cringe questions, and I think this is funny, you may not think this is funny, but I think it's funny. One of the most cringe questions to ask Christians is this, what is the gospel? It's one of the most cringe questions to receive as a Christian. I've seen church planters cringe and complicate this question. I've seen individuals uh, respond with uh, the phrase, oof. If you've ever heard that phrase, it's like a meme now, right? Like if, oh, I just asked you something so profound that it, it merits, oof. Like, I don't know what that means, but apparently it's a, it's a meme on social media. And some of you laugh because you're probably the one that does it. And so it's either that kind of a phrase, and once you begin to kind of think about it, it begins with something like this. Well, for me, I feel like the gospel is insert your thing. You might even provide a Sunday school answer. What is the gospel? Oh, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus, right? It's a very, very Sunday school answer. You might even say, well, the gospel is good news, to which I would lovingly push back and say, no, that's what the word means, but that's not what the gospel is. Unlike the conspiracy surrounding Tupac's life, or his death, alleged, the gospel is a confessional message of truth, that Jesus Christ saves sinners like you and me. There is no conspiracy, and there is no theory, and there is no uh, mythology behind this message. It is clear, it is true, and for us, it is central to who we are. So what I'd like to do is pray, and then we'll get into this large text that we find ourselves in. Once more, if you just got here, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 1 through 11. Let me pray. God, you are a good God, you are a gracious God, and you are a God who speaks to us. You speak to us primarily through your word, and for that, we are thankful, we are grateful. God, we thank you for this gathering uh, because in this gathering, we exalt the name of Jesus. We make much of you, Lord, and by your word, it penetrates our hearts. It penetrates the depth of our bones and hearts so that we would ultimately know Jesus or know him better. At the end of the day, when it comes to this time, the glory is all yours. It is your business. Our business is worship. And so, God, we pray that your word would move us and captivate our hearts so that we might live, uh, so that we might know and live like Jesus. And so we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're a note taker, then you're going to love the structure of this sermon. Uh, that is, I wish to provide you with seven observations from 1 Corinthians 15 on why we value gospel centrality. To give you a little bit of context, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this letter to a young church that has all sorts of issues and are generally in a giant mess. In fact, if the tagline, or if there was a tagline to the letter to the Corinthians, it would be this, 1 Corinthians, Christians gone wild. That would be what 1 Corinthians would be. And kind of to give you a little bit of insight, we might be headed there in January of next year, but that's for another topic. The apostle writes to the church and by the Spirit to us of what is of first importance. And our first observation is that the gospel is central to every part of our lives, beginning in verse 1. We're only looking at a couple of words, and he goes on to say, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. 
1 Corinthians 15 is a point of clarity because Paul, over the course of the last 14 chapters, has been using the gospel to address several different issues with the Corinthians. He's addressed everything from sex and marriage, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and much, much more. And so by the time he gets to this point in the letter, Paul is as clear as possible on the centrality of the gospel. And he makes this point by reminding them of what they have already received. Ultimately, Paul reminds them that all of the problems that they've been facing is because the gospel has not been central to their identity and to their activity. And so what Paul is ultimately saying is that they are off course in their walk with the Lord because the gospel is not their central focus. They are off track because they have begun to build their lives outside of the gospel. And so when he opens up by saying, now I would remind you, brothers, here's what you and I need to take away from that. You and I are forgetful, not just in the things we need to do, you can get on YouTube and see a number of productivity gurus. You can download a number of apps that are going to help you with reminders and help you structure your life better and help you program a bunch of different to-do lists. But at the end of the day, what all that tells us isn't just how to be more productive. What that tells us is that you and I are forgetful. We're not just forgetful in what we need to do. We are forgetful in who we are. In fact, if you're a Christian, you and I are so forgetful about who we are and the work of Jesus for us that it's really easy for you and I to default to who we used to be. The message that the Corinthians need to hear is not one that is new. Rather, the message they need to hear, the message that you and I need to hear, is one of what is true. They need a fresh reminder, not of what's new, but what is true. And so when you consider the Bible, this is not an old book, this is an eternal book. And because it is an eternal book, it is timeless. You and I are so prone to wander that it's easy to build our lives outside of the gospel. It's so easy for us to build our lives outside of the gospel that you and I will end up inevitably confused as to why things are the way they are in our lives particularly. And so I want you to consider for a moment, have you forgotten the gospel? Are you off track in your walk with the Lord? If I could just be honest for a minute, one of the most dominating conversations this year in our church, at least as I've spoken with many, one of the most dominating conversations, and I've mentioned this before, has been centered around spiritual apathy. Apathy is real. I'm not gonna knock it. And there's a difference between apathy and ignorance. This isn't that. When we're talking about apathy, we're talking about a condition where an individual simply doesn't care, is disinterested, is disconnected, and is just, quite honestly, struggling to care. Apathy comes from a result of many things. And we're not gonna dive into the depths of that right now, but once more, if we can be honest, Straight up, apathy is destructive. One of the reasons that it's destructive is because it positions you to center your life around something outside of the gospel. To his people in Hosea, God says this. 
But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Apathy is a result of us indulging in something outside of God and his word and the gospel. And so when we indulge in that, we inevitably become full by that. When we become full by that and we begin to build our lives around whatever that is, we forget about God. We forget about his word. We forget about his work. We forget about his wonders. In Hosea, we see that apathy is the result of indulgence, indulgence in our sin. You know, when you become so desensitized to sin, when you consider your sin to be normal and this is just the way you are, apathy is the result of not just boredom, but disinterest. You're disconnected. Apathy can also be the result of filling our minds with things outside of what God has told us. We know that a lot of those things are great and beautiful and good. God has given us many gifts, but when we begin to centrally focus our attention, our things that are on the earth and not above, we become filled by them instead of God's goodness. The result doesn't just end with you and I being apathetic. The result in relationships is that people are hurt, that your personal ambitions are distorted, that you are almost drowning, if not just floating in a desire to experience something else, but nothing is happening, so there is this disconnect from God, and you're just floating in this sea of disinterest and apathy. Could we at least begin, could we at least begin by confessing that this sort of condition, can we at least confess that spiritual apathy began as we started to build our lives around something outside of the gospel? Can we at least start there? So when Paul says, let me remind you, brothers, the encouragement to you, our church, Storehouse McAllen, not just the the universal church, Storehouse McAllen is, hey, I want you as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother, I want you to start with the gospel, especially if you're in that condition of spiritual apathy. Especially Especially if you've already begun to consider if you're off track with the gospel that you've forgotten God's goodness for you. Could we at least confess together that that started when we began to build our lives around something outside of the gospel? If so, this afternoon, I want you to be reminded of the gospel. I want you to start with the gospel. The reminder of the gospel for you is a reminder of hope in the midst of struggle. But we got to start there. So be encouraged by being reminded of what is central, that you're not too far gone and you can't redo this. Like, no, you are not too far gone. Be reminded of what is central, and that is the gospel that was preached to you. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. Once more, the beauty of this is not that it's something new. It's just a fresh reminder of what is true. Start with the gospel this afternoon. Second, 
Paul tells us that the gospel is received. We're still in verse 1. He continues. And don't worry, it'll pick up. We're not just going to look at little phrases. He goes on to say, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. It's a continued thought. Paul begins by saying, hey, I want you to remember the gospel. And I want you to remember the gospel because you received it. You didn't find it. You received it. In turn, Paul is saying, we didn't figure it out for ourselves. You and I didn't save ourselves. In fact, the Bible teaches that before you and I knew God, we didn't seek him. We didn't honor him. We didn't desire him, nor did we know him. In fact, what the Bible teaches is that you and I suppressed any knowledge of him so that we would be our own God. So this message of God's grace wasn't us stumbling upon it. It was God on a rescue mission for you upon which you received this message. And so if you're a Christian, you're here by God's grace because someone shared, preached, taught the good news of the gospel to you. God used someone who was broken, nervous, probably fumbling with their words and a little faulty in their theology to show you how glorious, good, and gracious he is. It's not a coincidence. And in that exchange, the Lord Jesus at some point made himself known to you. And in so doing, your heart was made new. Not just new, it was made spiritually alive. I've said this many times where before we knew God, we are physically alive but spiritually dead in our sin. And God made us alive in Christ and now we are spiritually alive. When Paul uses the word received, it's not the same thing as hearing. But accepting. In other words, this word that you received actually took root in your heart. It began to change your nature. It didn't make you better. It made you new. It didn't just make you a good person. It's making you more human. To the Thessalonians, Paul makes this distinction. This is in the second chapter. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He's saying, hey, you received it. In this context, he's saying, you heard the gospel. I came with my team and we preached the gospel to you. You heard it with your ears. You could listen to me as I was preaching the gospel. And then he makes this distinction. And he says, and you accepted it. In other words, it took root in their hearts that it actually began to change their nature as they became spiritually alive in Jesus. The work of God enfolding you into his story of redemption by him making himself known to you is not a coincidence. Like you can be tripped out and freaked out that you're a Christian, but not to God. It's not a coincidence to him. It's the result of God's work through the truth being proclaimed and the gospel being received. Our God is a speaking God. And one of the primary ways in which he speaks to us is through the proclamation of his word. What you and I are doing right now, we're worshiping. So if you've heard the gospel before, praise God. If you're like, yeah, this isn't new. That's awesome. That means we're not a cult, and that's a really good thing. <laughs> the question here. The question here is, but have you received it? 
Have you trusted in Jesus by faith alone? Have you repented of your sin? What is God teaching you? What is the gospel? Third, still in verse 1, by the way, Paul says that this gospel that we have received is the truth that we stand on. He says, I preach to you what you received in which you stand. We are only as strong as the foundation that we stand on. And our foundation isn't the problem, and it's not shaky. We're the ones who are shaky. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not a message or work rooted in what you do for God or to earn God's favor, but it's one that is rooted in what God has done for you through Jesus. This is why you can trust it. This is why you can accept it. This is why you can build your life around the gospel. This is why you can stand on the foundation of the gospel. It's rooted in his faithfulness, not ours. And this is what the Corinthians were forgetting. They were beginning to build their foundation on issues that were important and needed to be addressed, but they were beginning to build their foundation outside of the gospel and trying to address those issues. The gospel is what we can stand on in the face of fear, uncertainty, and certainly our comfort. Number four, now we get to move on to verse two, making some progress. Fourth, we are transformed by the gospel. Verse two, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We are transformed by the gospel. Yes, it is a message of salvation that God saves sinners. Yet God doesn't leave you there forgiven and then wondering what's next. Rather, it's a message with the power to transform the whole person. And this is what Paul means when he says, by which you are being saved. There are two things, among many others, but there are two things that we need to consider when it comes to salvation. Justification, sanctification. Cool? Justification, sanctification. Justification means to be declared right before God through faith in Jesus alone. Outside of that, outside of our justification, we are not right with God. In fact, we are enemies of God. We are at war with God. We are not friends with God. But God, in his goodness and his kindness, has saved us, justifying us, declaring us righteous. Justification is an act of God. It is him saving us. Cool? Our status has changed. Our hearts are new. We go from sinners to saints. We go from orphans to sons and daughters. We go from enemies to friends. We go from lost to found. That's justification. That is God saving us where he is the primary agent. Almost instantaneously, there's something called sanctification. We immediately walk into that. Sanctification is us responding to God's work in us now. This is as you and I begin to mature. This is as you and I put sin to death, as we grow in our love for Jesus, as we pursue holiness, as we worship and exalt the name of Jesus. This is where and how we grow as Christians. As we learn more about God, we learn more about ourselves, and we are responding to his work in us. You could say it this way. Justification is one-handed. God is saving us. Sanctification it's two. 
right? It's God working in us. It's us responding to that work. That's what Paul means when he says that we are being saved. It's this ongoing process of us learning to be more like Jesus, learning to live like him, putting our sin to death, putting the old to death, and putting the new as we move forward. That's what Paul means when he uses that little phrase, by which you are being saved. The gospel transforms the whole person. The gospel transforms our head where our our minds are now renewed. The gospel transforms our hearts where our hearts are now alive because we have the affection of God in us and for him. The gospel transforms our hands where we proclaim his goodness, where we serve others. Romans 12.2, Paul once more says it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, testing, so that that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As a result of the gospel transforming us, you and I can now discern what is good, what is the will of God, what is pleasing to God. The The gospel transforms the whole person, not just your intellect. Yet here in verse 2, Paul adds an implication. And he says, unless you believed in vain. Transformation, or another word for transformation is fruit. I'll say it that way. Another word for transformation is fruit. And the Bible teaches that a tree will be known by the fruit it produces. Check it. An orange tree doesn't produce apples. Likewise, a Christian is known for the fruit that they produce. Fruit, our good works, is a byproduct of faith. And so what Paul says here when he says, unless you believed in vain, unless you just spoke with your mouth and you backed up, Paul says it with pastoral like a care. In other words, he doesn't want them to believe in vain. But that's the implication. Fifth, the gospel is clear. This is verses 3 through 4. He goes on to say, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here we go. Where many Christians stumble and maybe even forget the gospel in the following verses, Paul lays it out clear for us to hear, for us to preach, for us to meditate, for us to memorize, and for us to practice. So let's acknowledge the gospel is clear. The message of the gospel is clear. And Paul knows this not because he's awesome, but because it's the same message or the same message that he has preached to the Corinthians was actually one that he received himself. And that's the qualifier that Paul uses here. He's not just saying like, hey, I'm going to drop this message on you because I came up with it and because I went to school and you did it, right? Like he's not going that route. Paul is saying, I received the same message that I'm proclaiming to you. This message isn't coming from within me. And so he goes on, verse 3, For I deliver to you of first importance. Paul's saying, I'm telling you this. That little word for is another word for because. I'm telling you this because the gospel is of first importance. And I'm telling you this as someone who has received the same message. Friends, gospel centrality in our church is our first value because of its clarity and its significance. 
Therefore, we need to constantly be course-corrected by the preaching of this gospel because you and I tend to reduce Christianity to morality where we view the scriptures as strictly rules and commands. And while the Bible does have rules and commands for us to obey, they are the byproduct of faith given that we have received this grace. It's of first importance because you and I need more than good advice. You and I need good news. Plenty of people who do not know Jesus receive good advice, and many Christians want good advice. But what we need, what everyone needs, is good news. Not about what you need to do, but about what Jesus has done for you. The gospel is not merely about how you can be better, but it's on how God makes you new. And so because of its importance, because of its significance, it is clear. And so Paul goes on by saying that Christ died. This alludes to Jesus' life. Jesus lived a sinless life, not just as an example, but as our substitute. Jesus died for our sin on a cross in our place, for all of our sin, past, present, and future. In this, Jesus bore our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, our failure, our filth, and in exchange gives us his righteousness. He receives our penalty. He substitutes himself for us so that you and I are forgiven. Check it before we go back to notes. Please do not get over this, ever. Don't ever get over that message of the gospel. You and I struggle with the grace of God because our hearts are prone to default toward identifying ourselves with religious activity over our gospel identity. And so when it comes to the message of the gospel and we acknowledge that Jesus died for our sin, past, present, and future, you want to pay him back because it just weighs on you. And you just want to do things for God, but in a way that is false, in a way that is not in line with the gospel, because you think, man, God did this wonderful thing, this miraculous thing. How do I pay him back? We don't pay him back. We love him, and we worship him, and we trust him. We obey because we belong to him. We obey not so that we would be loved by God, but because we are loved by God. Peter, to scattered Christians, says this way, as obedient children, we're going to come back to that, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't be conformed to who you used to be. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The key there, for me, is the first three words as obedient children. Not so that you would become a child of God. Not so that you would earn his favor. Not so that you would do the things you need to do in order to be cool with him. No, as his child. As his child. Do not go back to who you used to be. Preach the gospel to yourself. Paul continues, or better yet before that, right? Like we want to pay him back. But on the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. The work by which we are reconciled to the Father has been accomplished. Paul continues by saying that Christ 
was buried, this means that the life and death of Jesus isn't theoretical but historical. He says that Christ was raised. This means that the power of God is not mythical but miraculous. Without the resurrection, Christianity does not exist. Paul even alludes to this later on in the, in the letter. He says, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He continues by adding this little phrase, according with the scriptures. He's pushing and emphasizing this point by saying, hey, I'm not the one making this up. I didn't come up with this. And the reason he uses the phrase according with the scriptures is because he's referring them and taking them back to the Old Testament. He's like, this was something that God started. And it started in the garden where God created man and woman in his image. And then Adam and Eve sinned. And then God came to them and said that he would one day send one from the seed of woman to crush Satan. So it started in the garden. And so we fast forward into the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, and we enter one called Leviticus. And Leviticus is focused on the sacrificial system of atonement and the forgiveness of sins and worship. But the whole point of Leviticus is to point us to the one who would be the ultimate and perfect and blameless sacrifice. God sends prophets to preach repentance to his people when they have strayed, when they've rejected him, when they've rebelled against him, pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And then one day in time, space, and history, God enters into our time. As Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death in your place, and continues to save sinners to this day. Man, is God even at work in my life? I mean, he saved you, didn't he? The gospel is clear. Sixth, Paul, as a way of providing further evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, shows us that the gospel is the message of grace. This is verses five through nine. If you've never heard about grace, grace is undeserving favor from God towards sinners. Can't earn it. It's unmerited. He gives it to us. And so God enters into time, space, and history and dies for his enemies. Grace is the last thing that you and I even consider, especially if you and I are on the forever construction of our highway and you're just yelling and cussing at the people in front of you, right? Like grace is the last thing that you and I even talk about yet or even think about, yet Jesus pours out all of his grace for those who bailed, rejected, and crucified. And so here Paul begins, this is verse 5, Paul begins by saying that he appeared to Cephas and the 12, to more than 500 brothers, uh, and then he appeared to James and then to Paul. So we're going to break, we're going to look at these in a different order because I want to show you a couple of things, right? So the first one is Cephas, that is when Jesus uh, rose from the dead, one of the first ones he went to was Cephas. Cephas is uh, Peter's name in Aramaic, right? So he appears to Peter, and could you just imagine that conversation? I mean, we get a front row seat of it in John 21. Peter is one that many often associate themselves with because he's the one that like, uh, acts or, 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 or speaks before he thinks. He, he's, he's the one that says a lot of dumb things. He's the one that makes even bigger mistakes, right? He's the one that's just constantly dropping the ball. And yet Jesus forgives him. 
We looked at Peter a little bit last week, and Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, and Peter was the one who didn't stay awake with Jesus to back him up. Peter is the one who denied him. Peter is the one who ran away from him. Peter is the one who rejected him, and yet Jesus forgave Peter. Peter, do you love me? He goes, you know I love you, Lord. He's like, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He's like, you know I love you, Lord. He's like, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets frustrated, right? Just with three questions. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus died for, for sinners like Peter. The ones who bail, the ones who reject him, the ones who are constantly falling on their face. Jesus died for sinners like Peter. Imagine the grace that Peter experienced in that conversation. The next one is James. James is Jesus' little brother. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, and they all thought he was crazy. Not to mention, could you imagine living with Jesus as a sibling? Right? He never gets in trouble. He's always good. He's always right. He always tells the truth. And it's wild to you and I because that's how normative our sin is. Yet Jesus appears to his brother, and I wonder what that conversation was like. James, who thought he was crazy, James was like, man, this is, no, this is never, you're done. Right? Like, I wonder what kind of things he would tell his brother. And yet Jesus appears to him, gives him grace, and James turns it all around because of grace. We read about his life and his death in Acts. He was one of the members in the Jerusalem council. He was a pastor, and he was murdered. Many of you have had this kind of experience where you thought following Jesus was foolish and that being a Christian and living for God's glory rather than yours was absolutely rubbish. And then God made himself known to you. And some of you have experienced some of the rejection and avoidance that Jesus experienced from his own family. My wife and I had dinner with a couple, and one of the things that they were sharing with us was um, that they changed their lifestyle, so they repented of sin, and they started walking in this way that honored God, and they wanted to glorify God, and so it's wonderful news. It's this big change and transformation in their life, and so they go to share this with some of the members of their family, and the members in their family kind of just begin to avoid them and reject them, and they are confused because I thought this was good, and I just want to tell you about Jesus, and I want to tell you how we were living wrongly, and we were uh, 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 in sin towards Jesus, and now we're, we're following following him, we're obeying him, and the family just pushed back by avoiding them. Some of you have had that experience. Listen, if you belong to Jesus, no one can take that away from you. No one can take that away from you. You belong to Jesus because of his grace for you. Paul says that he appeared to the 12. You can assume that those are the apostles. You know, the apostles, the ones who all fled in fear, the ones who hid in shame, the ones who had no clue what the plan was after Jesus died, even though Jesus said over and over again what the plan would be. If only they had some of the apps we have today. Yet Jesus appears to them, cooks them breakfast, forgives them, and commissions them to spread the message of his gospel, and the church is born. What? And finally, Paul lists himself last. 
Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul considers him, considers himself utterly unworthy. This little phrase that he uses, as one untimely born, it's a very strong description. It's a very strong description that illustrates an infant being discarded at birth or an infant who is tragically aborted. Paul refers to himself as that for one reason, the persecution of the church. In Acts, we see Paul throw Christians in prison. We see him green light the killing of Christians. We see him going after the church. Paul is saying, when he uses that little phrase, Paul is saying this, if anyone should have been left for dead, it was me. Right, once more, verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles. And more did you be called an apostle. Paul says, rather than leaving me in the condition that I was in, Jesus saved me. And I am unworthy. I am unworthy to be called an apostle. In fact, by God's grace, I am what I am. And in other words, I'm only here because of what Jesus could do. And what Paul tells you and I in this is, man, if Jesus can save me, he can save you. Now, you're here, and if you belong to Jesus, I'm telling you, hey, if Jesus can save you, he can save your family member. He can save your friend. He can save your coworker. He can save your neighbor. Paul, like, Paul's that other extreme, but some of us are those examples as well. And this isn't the first time Paul uh, refers to himself as the worst of sinners. To Timothy, as he's writing this encouraging letter to him, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. In other words, he's saying, hey, you can bank on what I'm about to tell you. Jesus saves sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If Jesus could save me, could you imagine how many more he'll save? If anyone wasn't, like, if anyone was to know Jesus, it probably wouldn't have been Paul. Like, he was the one who was the most resourced. He was the one who was the most educated. He was the one who was probably motivated in all the wrong ways because he knew the Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament, yet he did not know Jesus. And that tells us something. You can know a lot about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you know him. And finally, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Again, not theoretical or mythical, but historical. And Paul says, and if you don't believe me, some of them are still alive. Now, as we fast forward to our time, like, yeah, well, they're all dead. Now they're all officially asleep, right? Like if we were to go back to 1 Corinthians, like everybody, there would be no smartphone out of anybody's pocket. Everybody would just be enjoying the moment. But the idea here is that it presents a question to us. And the question tends to be, well, how can we prove that the message of, of, of the gospel is true? How can we demonstrate that grace is real and that Jesus is alive? Here it is. You ready? The church. The church is the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. 
you are the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. Because if you consider even logically and practically, when it comes to the disciples, like a message like the gospel doesn't really have a benefit. They were all martyred with the exception of one. You don't tell that kind of lie unless there's some kind of benefit for you. They don't tell a message like, you know what, forever is a long time and hell is really hot. How about we just make this one message that says you got to come to Jesus if you want eternal life. There's usually some benefit to a lie, but in this case, they were the fruit of the resurrection. You are the fruit of the resurrection. They're like, man, the gospel really doesn't make sense. Right, that's called grace because it doesn't bank on what you've done. It banks on what Jesus has done. You are the fruit of his resurrection, a physical demonstration of his relational nature, of his mercy, of his grace. And this is what sets Christianity apart. It's about the God of the universe on a rescue mission to save sinners and sufferers and make them saints as he, as they make him known to all who don't know him. Finally, number seven, The gospel empowers us. This is verses 10 to 11. Here's what Paul says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. A little arrogant, but let's talk about it. The gospel empowers you and I. One of the things that Paul writes is that the work of God for him was not in vain. In fact, when Jesus saves you, it's not out of pity but love. When he saves you, it's not out of charity but grace. It's intentional. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. The gospel saves and transforms you and also empowers you. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So he puts it on the table. He says, because of what Jesus has done for me, because of what Jesus did, I worked harder than all of them. Them are the rest of the apostles. He says, I outworked all of them. I did more than all of them. He goes on to say, because of what Jesus has done for me, I went all in. That's ultimately what he's getting at. I went all in because my motivation was the grace of God. There it is, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I'm the one that should have been left for dead. Instead, Jesus saved me, and as a result of his saving work for me, I went all in, and it is the grace of God that empowered me to go all in. Here's what you and I need to remember. God's grace doesn't only forgive you when you fail, it also empowers you to be the person God has called you to be, to do the things God has called you to do. Yes, the grace of God has the power to change your mind, to change your heart, change your desires, to reorient your course of life. It has the power to give you meaning and value and purpose. The grace of God means that Jesus is with you. It means that Jesus is for you and that Jesus is at work in you. It means that you do not have to say yes to sin. You can say yes to Jesus instead. Paul's motivation and focal point on all of this was centered upon the gospel because it was the grace of God that empowered him, that motivated him, that drove him. Wherever he was, he was content. 
You have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So Christian, are you all in? If you have received this message, are you all in? You might say, well, yeah, I think I'm all in. Then ponte las pilas, right? Like, let's go. The gospel empowers you by the grace of God. Lived and spoken with conviction. Paul concludes verse 11, whether then it was I or they, the apostles, so we preach and you believe. We preach Christ and Christ crucified consistent with the other apostles or the apostolic message and not for the purpose of, I feel like, or to me, the gospel is. Rather, no, the gospel is clear. And because it is clear, it is what we preach that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why gospel centrality is our first value. It's of first importance. And the truth is, as a church, we may not get a lot of things right. And we might have to work hard and adjust things and remove ministries and add ministries and reevaluate a bunch of things all of the time. We might even make all these mistakes in our history. But there is one thing that we will get right. And that one thing that we will preach, the one thing that we will stand on, the one thing that we will build our lives around for the glory of God is the message of the gospel. Jesus is alive, Jesus is good, Jesus is saving people, Jesus is growing his church, Jesus' church will prevail. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And with this message, he has called us to be on mission with him. Storehouse McAllen is Jesus' church by ownership, but it's our church by stewardship. So let us keep the gospel central. Let us proclaim the message of the gospel without compromise. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus empower us in all that we do for his glory. So unlike Tupac, whose life or death remains a mystery and leaves people wanting for something new, the gospel is a message not of mystery, but of the miraculous. It is a message that doesn't contain something new, but a fresh reminder of what is true, of what has always been true, and what will always be true. And that is that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ to live the life that you and I cannot live, to die the death that you and I deserve. Then he was buried, and when he was rose on the third day, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. Jesus left our sin and death in that grave so that we might know him and live like him. This is why gospel centrality is our first value. So Christian, are you off track? Have you forgotten what is of first importance? Are you building your life around something outside of the gospel? I want you to be reminded today about grace. And so as we pray, I want you to preach the gospel to yourself as you commune with God. That's it. I want you to just preach the gospel to yourself. That Christ lived, died, buried, rose again, forgiving you of all of your sin, Christian. I want you to start with the gospel. It is an act of worship, and it is the simplest place to start. 
And if your heart right now is battling, but what about this? And I just need it. No, let's just start with the gospel. We'll tackle everything else with the grace that empowers us. But let's first be reminded of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. It's not a coincidence that you're here. And I pray that this message is one that you receive. For right now, you stand opposed to God. Not as a friend, but as an enemy. Yet, God has made a way for you to know him through Jesus. Repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus. Place your trust in the grace of God for you. This message that I preach is one that I made up. It's one that I received. So consider it. The gospel is not a message with something new. Rather, it is a fresh reminder of what is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your living and active word. It penetrates beyond our bones, beyond the surface of our hearts. We just thank you for it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the scriptures to be written. And that you illuminate for our understanding of them. Thank you, Jesus, who came on a rescue mission for us, forgiving us of our sin and saving us so that we would know him and live like him. And so, Father, as we come before you, forgive us where we fall short. Forgive us where we have forgotten you. Forgive us when we deny you. Father, forgive us when we reject you. By your grace, empower us with the same grace you give to forgive us. Empower us so that we would change. Empower us so that we would grow. Empower us so that we would proclaim and practice the goodness of your gospel to ourselves and to those around us.